So today's passage is really kind of the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. I mean, we've been slowly working through this book, so a lot of times we forget kind of the overall narrative of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not just these made-up stories or a collection of stories, but it's actually history. It's the history that takes place in the early church after Jesus dies on the cross and he, he, he rises again. And then he goes up and the Holy Spirit comes down and the rest is really history. We see that the gospel is on the move, especially in the life of Paul and through the life of Paul. And so Paul, he gets this calling to be a missionary. He goes out um, on previous two trips, and this one is taking about five years for him to kind of go through this trip. And compared to the two missionary journeys that he went on before, this one is a little bit different because before he went to places of Galatia, uh, cities in Macedonia and different places, these were places that never heard the gospel before. But here, on the third missionary journey, mostly what Paul is doing is he's revisiting a lot of the cities that he went to before. He's not going to new places. He's seeing old faces. He's visiting churches that he planted, believers that he strengthened, and he's having conversations with them in order to uplift, really, their their spirit and to strengthen them and encourage them so that they can faithfully walk in the name of Jesus. And then we learn that he spends about three years in Ephesus, which is kind of the longest time that he spends at any given city during his missionary journeys. And he has a special kind of heart for Ephesus because for three years it says that he taught the Bible daily. He made disciples to the point where it says in Acts 19.10, in this pagan city, through this pagan city, it says all the residents of Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, through his obedience to the Lord, through his commitment to the gospel, we see that it's not just an entire city, but it's really an entire region that comes back to Jesus. So it's it's quite amazing. But now we're in the end game, where the object of the trip is no longer just preaching the gospel, but Paul, he fixes his eyes on one place, and that is Jerusalem, where it all began. And through this passage, I want us to see two things. Um, Just want to highlight two simple truths from this text. The first uh, truth is that um, through the gospel, we receive the gift of friendship. And the second truth is that through the gospel, we can walk in discipleship, although it costs us a lot. Okay, so the gift of friendship and the cost of discipleship. That's what we're going to talk about today. So the gift of friendship. Now, Pastor Danny did mention a lot of things about friendship last week. I believe that you had a healthy discussion within your life group uh, regarding friendship. But I feel like today's passage just takes gospel friendship to a whole new level. Just kind of a quick review. If you look at the end of chapter 20, you kind of have this emotional scene where Paul, he kind of gives this farewell speech to the elders of Ephesus, and, uh, and then he says goodbye. And it's pretty just dramatic and emotional, to say the least. Uh, in verse 36 of chapter 20, we see that they kneel together, right? They uh, pray together. In verse 37, they are weeping together, like a lot. They are embracing Paul. They are kissing Paul in a friendly way, and uh, people are incredibly sad because Paul, he's going to leave, and they know that 
this is probably the last time they're going to see him. So it's a very emotional kind of scene. And when I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but uh, just to picture it like, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but by now you should have watched this movie, right, Endgame, uh, where at the very end we have a very emotional kind of detachment with a very specific Marvel character that has served us for a long time. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's how much I'm going to say. But really, this, this scene is more intimate. It's more personal. It's more dramatic than any scene that a Hollywood movie can put out. It, it's more dramatic than a, a show on Netflix. It's just really, really emotional. And Luke, who is the author, uh, the writer of this book, and he's also with Paul. That's why we see in today's passage that uh, he's speaking in uh, the second person uh, plural. Uh, no, sorry, third person plural because, uh, you know, we, together. And that's, it's because he is with Paul at this moment. And it says in Acts 21, verse 1, And we had parted from them and said, Sail. And if you look at the NIV, or if you look especially in the original Greek, that word parted, it just means that they were torn apart. That it literally means that we tore ourselves away from them because it was so hard to kind of say goodbye to these people who we were with together for a long time. These leaders of Ephesus who basically, you know, Paul nurtured from since they were spiritual infants. So you can just tell the care and the love that exists among the believers in the early church, but it gets even better in today's passage. Because now Paul, he is headed back to Jerusalem. He visits two different islands, and then he finds a cargo ship that would cross the Mediterranean Sea. And so he gets to a place called Phoenicia, and there he walks a little bit, and he gets to this place called Tyre. Now that's about 100 miles north to Jerusalem. So he's getting closer and closer to his, his destination. And because there is no Airbnb in the first century, no hotels to stay, um, what Paul and, the, uh, and, his, and his team does is they look for the disciples in that city. Now, Paul doesn't have a specific tie to them. He doesn't really know anyone there. He just simply looks for believers who would probably host them. And it says that the believers in that city, they took Paul and his, his team in their arms, although they have no personal connection whatsoever. The only connection that they have is the gospel connection, right? That they are brothers in Christ. And just on that fact alone, they welcome Paul and his team, his crew, into their homes for seven days. And that's pretty incredible. And uh, I know a lot of you guys have, who have been here for a long time, you experienced our missions conference, which comes every four years or so. And I, heard, I never experienced this, but I heard that this is a crazy time because we have about 100 plus like, missionaries who, with families who, who come uh, to, to our church. And for about a week, from what I heard, is it's all on the life groups to host these, these missionaries. Right, so a lot of hospitality, a lot of pouring uh, uh, love on these people. But at the same time, it's hard. It's difficult. Even if your friend wants to come over to your place, I mean, for a week, that's, that's, that's stretching it. Right? You're taking it a bit too far. But here we see that Paul, he doesn't have any ties with the believers, yet the believers, they display such hospitality and friendship to Paul simply because they are brothers in Christ. And it gets even better if you look at 
verse 5, because now when it's time to say goodbye, they bring out their wives, they bring out their children, they walk all together all the way to the port, and they kind of stay there until Paul and his team gets on the ship. Now, I, as a student, as, when I was especially single, I gave a lot of rides to people to the airport. Um, and my normal thing is, okay, even if you're close with me, uh, I just drive up to the, the, the departure section, and I just drop you off, right? If I'm close with you, I'll get out. I'll wave my hand or maybe, you know, a pat on the back or, 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 or you know, do something. But at the same time, like, I'm not going in that building. That's just my thing. I'm busy. I have a schedule, right? I don't, I don't want to pay for parking. I don't want to waste time just in, in the airport. I'm just headed off. But when it's family, and I learned this uh, from my wife, you know, I learned that you know, it's, it's different when you go to the airport, especially if you don't see your family that often. I just remind myself that every time I visit Korea, my parents are in Korea, and every time I would come back to the States, they would always wait till the end. They would park the car, uh, they would kind of, we would have a final meal, they would wait for me to go through the security line and Every time I look back, they're still waving. They're still watching, right? And the same thing happens uh, with my wife and my in-laws, too. And that's when I noticed that when you really love someone, um, that's, you don't want to send them. So you stay there till the very end. And that's exactly what is going on in today's passage. You know, these believers, they don't want to see Paul go. They love Paul so dearly. And it's crazy because they only spent seven days together. But in those seven days, they got so close with one another. Why? Because they had this gospel connection. Gospel friendships are pretty amazing. The friendships that we can experience within the church, within the body of believers, is just something that's, that's not of this world. It's clearly different. And if this does not amaze you, look at what happens in verse 7. Paul, now he travels to a new place, um, Ptolemaeus, that's now 80 miles away from Jerusalem, so he's getting closer. And again, no Airbnb, but no problem. He just, um, you know, he's greeted and welcomed by the believers there. He stays for a day. Again, the believers, they show hospitality and fellowship there. And then he moves on to a new city, Caesarea. Now they're about 55 miles away from Jerusalem. This is the closest port city to Jerusalem. And as they are getting closer and closer, in verse 8, it says that Paul entered into the house of Philip, who is the evangelist and who is one of the seven. Now, this is a big deal. Because if you know who Philip is, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, he was one of the seven deacons who were appointed by the Jerusalem church. Now, this was before um, the gospel has spread throughout Judea or Samaria. The gospel was strictly in Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, another deacon, one of the seven, Stephen, he gets killed. He gets stoned. By whose command? By Paul's command. So Philip, he lost a friend, a beloved friend and a brother to Paul. Philip, he moved places. He left his home because Paul was coming after for his neck. Philip, you can imagine all the bitterness and the hate and the pain and the sorrow that was in his heart, especially when he would think of Paul. But what's amazing is that this guy is the one who welcomes Paul and his team. They were enemies before. 
they are now friends. And the Bible says that Paul spent many days at this place. Imagine being Philip. Right? Someone who wronged you so deeply. Someone who hurt you so bad. The person that you just want to get rid of in your life. The person that you wish God would not have created. Imagine that person one day shows up to you. Would you be able to welcome them in your home? And the Bible says, yes, if there is the gospel. The gospel allows enemies to become friends. So we see that the friendship that God offers, the friendship that is possible in the gospel, it, it is just out of this world. It's so different from the friendship that we see in this world. So the gospel allows us to share in this godly friendship. And this friendship is radically different from anything that we see in this world. If you think about our friendship today, especially with all the social media stuff, all the technology that we have, it is super easy to connect with people. At the same time, it is super easy to defriend people, right? We can pick and choose who we want to hang out with. Before, there's a specific group that you are stuck with. Right? You don't have a lot of options when it comes to friends. But now with the internet, and I see this a lot, especially with our teenagers, before you are stuck with the people that you see at school, now you can connect with anyone. Anyone that you like, anyone that likes you, anyone that shares the same values, anyone that likes the same stuff, anyone that might look like you or act like you and talk like you, you have the power to choose who you want to spend time with. And if that doesn't work out, you can move on to the next friend. And if that doesn't work out, you, can't, you can move on to the next friend. The truth is, a lot of times, our friendship is shallow. It is instant, and it fades away fairly quickly. But the Bible tells us that the gospel friendship that is displayed, it's not shallow, but it's super deep. And it's also not based on our convenience, but it's based on the need of others. The people, they display this love and this friendship and this fellowship, but notice that it's very intentional and in a practical way. And you might think, how in the world are they able to do so? Welcome strangers into their home. I mean, maybe they knew who Paul was, but to actually welcome strangers, an entire team into your house, to accept people who were once enemies into your house, that, that's crazy. How were they able to do this? And the answer is actually found in the life of Jesus in John chapter 13, because Jesus, after washing the feet of the disciples, which included Peter, who was going to deny him in a couple hours, which included Judas, who was going to betray him in a couple hours, he washed every disciple their feet. And this is what he says at the very end in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says the way that people will know that you are my disciples is not through your opinions. It's not through the truth that you claim. Although those are very important, the main attraction to unbelievers is going to be the love that you have for one another another. And it's not just any type of love, but it's the love that I give you. It's the love that I demonstrated. What is that love? It's a self-giving, selfless love. It's a serving love. Jesus, he is the teacher. He is the master, but he takes the form of the servant, washes the feet of the disciples, does the most dirtiest job that was reserved for the lowest servants. 
and he meets their needs. And it's not just by washing their feet, but he washes their souls on the cross because that whole event was simply a foreshadowing of what was to happen on the cross where Jesus not only took the form of a servant, but he took the form of a servant to the point of death. And he gave himself. Why? Because he loved his own to the very end. And when we are recipients of that love, if that's the love that Jesus loves us with, and that's the love that transforms our hearts, the Bible is telling us that we ought to love one another in the same way. And the question is, are we? When people walk into this building, when they come to our gatherings, is this the love that they see among us? Is this the friendship and the fellowship that they will see in our church? Now, if we put it that way, it's easy for us to say this. Well, you know, maybe it's time to switch churches because I had a hard time making friends. You know, I don't feel like I connect with anyone. But you have to understand the commandment that's given here is not just about finding true friends, but you being a true friend. That's the point of it all. No, it's, it's God is challenging us to be like these believers, to be uh, people who would value friendship, who would take the time, although it's tiring, although it's costly, although it's, it, it just wears us down. God is telling us, invest in people, especially fellow believers and sisters, in a way that would meet their needs. Why? Because that is exactly how he loved us. And so we see that true friendship, godly friendship, is a gift that's given to us by God in the gospel. So amazing picture of friendship. But there's something really, really weird that's happening in this passage. Because although friendship is great and it is good, we see that friendship is not ultimate. Because at the end of the day, Paul, he leaves his friends to go to Jerusalem. And this teaches us that what's ultimate in the Christian life is not fellowship or friendship, it is discipleship. It is following Jesus. That's the most important thing that we need to focus on. And friendship and fellowship kind of falls under that umbrella. Now look at verse 4. If you have your Bible open, it says, When Paul went to Tyre, through the Spirit, now I have no idea how this happened, but the disciples there, they were told that, you know, something was going to happen in Jerusalem. So they tell Paul, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. Something bad is going to happen. I just have this feeling. And, and they, feel, they, they feel like God is, is actually showing this, revealing this, this danger so that they can block Paul from going to Jerusalem. But guess what? Paul just goes. And then we see in, in, in verse 10, again, when he goes to the city of Caesarea as he's staying with, um, with, with Philip, we see in, in verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, who is Agabus? Uh, we saw this person in Acts chapter 11. He is a prophet. He's the one who actually predicted that there is going to be a great famine in the land uh, of Judea and other regions of the earth, and that actually came true. So that shows us that he is a credible prophet. Paul is aware of him. He was the one who came from Jerusalem to Antioch when Paul was at the church of Antioch to predict this famine, and Paul was the one who kind of collected a lot of stuff to help out the church of Jerusalem at that time. And so we see that this credible guy, maybe a prophet that Paul respects, comes to him, and all of a sudden he takes the belt of Paul, which was probably a long piece of cloth. He, he wraps it around his, his arms and his, and, and, and his feet and says, well, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul, this is you. Danger lies ahead of you. Suffering lies ahead of you. And when the, the team hears this, Luke and other people, when they hear this, look at verse 12, it says, when we heard this, we and the other people there, everyone kind of urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Again, we see that the entire church is on board. They're like, Paul, this is too dangerous. This is too costly. Suffering awaits you. This is a bad idea. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit is showing us these things. And look at Paul's response. Instead of Paul saying, oh, no, don't worry. I got it. You know, I'm a strong man. I can handle myself. You know, instead of saying, no, uh, Agabus, he's just high right now. You know, he, he might have been lucky before and got a, prophet, uh, a prophecy right, but now he's just seeing things. This is not going to happen. That's not his response. What he says in verse 13 is remarkable. He says this. He doesn't deny that suffering will happen in Jerusalem. Instead, he says, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice two things. First, his heart is broken. He doesn't say, man, you guys are stupid for coming up with this solution. No, he actually feels them. He doesn't condemn them. His heart is broken because he understands that these are good people with good intentions. Like, he knows that they love him and they care for him and they're basically concerned for him. But at the same time, a second thing that we see is that he is more concerned about the will of God than the will of men. That he simply says, although you guys care for me, although you guys love me and I feel loved, at the end of the day, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem. And in fact, this wasn't just the first time he was hearing these things. If you go back to chapter 20, you know, when Paul was on his, his missionary journey, third missionary journey, I said this, that in, sorry, in chapter 19, verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And in chapter 20, again, Paul is reminded by the Holy Spirit that there is going to be suffering that takes place in Jerusalem. So this is not new news. Paul had the same picture, the same word from the Holy Spirit. So here we learn a very important point. You can surround yourself with people who love you. You can surround yourself with people who have good intentions, but that doesn't mean everything that they say is right. That doesn't mean that you should always listen to them. I mean, we should listen. We should be attentive. You know, that's why we have this fellowship, and that's why we uh, sharpen one another. Iron sharpens iron, right? But at the end of the day, people are people. People saw the same reality, that there's danger ahead in Jerusalem. The disciples entirely, they saw this as a warning and to say, Paul, the Holy Spirit is telling you not to go. The disciples and the team um, in, in Caesarea, they said, well, this is bad news. Again, don't go. Paul saw the same reality, and what he said is, I'm not just ready to be in prison, I'm ready to die. Same prophecy, different interpretation. And the question is, how in the world was Paul able to come up with this type of decision? 
The answer is pretty simple, I believe. Jesus. That was his simple answer. If, if you look at this passage intently, Luke wants you to notice kind of the parallelism that exists between Paul's life and Jesus' life. Jesus, during his three years of ministry, three times it was predicted, he predicted himself that I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, and must die in the hands of the Jews and be crucified. Three times he predicted that. If you look at the count of Acts, three times it's predicted that Paul is actually going to go and suffer in Jerusalem. Now, if he was the first one to suffer, Paul would probably have said, no way, I ain't going. But he believes in a Messiah who endured the suffering on the cross so that he can have new life. And if that's the Messiah that he believes in, if that is his Lord and Savior, he says to himself, it is worth suffering for the will of God. No, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he says this, immature Christians, they listen to either everyone or to no one. So a lot of times we just follow the majority, right? What other people have to say, whether that's on Instagram or different platforms, we feel like, okay, these are what the famous people are saying. These are what the strong believers are saying. So let's just go with this flow. And sometimes we are just wishy-washy in our face. Sometimes we are like, you know, I don't care about what other people think. It's, it's my way or the highway. Like, I, I'm the person who's going to make the final decision. And both cases are pretty immature because the Bible is telling us you should be attentive to the believers that God surrounds you with. We're going to see that in the next passage. But at the end of the day, what should really determine your way, what you should really base your decision upon is the Lord's will. Does this bring glory to God? Does this please the Lord? Is this motivated by the gospel? Paul says, I am ready. I am ready. No, Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will face tribulation. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul says, indeed, all who desires to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering. Pain, trouble is not a possibility, it's a reality for every Christian who seeks to live for the glory of God. You know, I was thinking about this. For non-Christians, if you have an enemy, your response is to run away or to avoid. A Christian's response is to love. When there is a small, narrow road most people of this world would avoid that and go on the easy highway. The Christian response is to walk down that small and narrow road. The world tells you, live for yourself and live for your glory. The Christian life tells you, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Suffering is not a possibility. It is a reality in our life. And if this is true, could it be that sometimes suffering can be an indicator that you are actually living in the will of God. The fact that you are struggling, the fact that you are wrestling, the fact that life is not easy because you are really trying your best to live out your Christian faith, could it be that that's the indicator that you are living in the will of God? If there is no wrestling, if there is no struggle, could it be that it's because we are just like the world, so the world loves us, and we blend right into them, and so there's nothing to, 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 no tension whatsoever. 
God is calling us to this discipleship, but this discipleship is costly. And so one thing that we have to recognize is although God allows people in our lives and godly people with good intentions, at the end of the day, we have to come back to God's word, to his spirit, to really discern what is true. And we have to check our motives, whether or not this is really from the Lord and if this is really for the gospel. And along the way, if suffering is there, instead of saying, okay, this is a hard way, therefore it not, might not be the right way, if this suffering is worth going through for the glory of God, you go through it. You endure and you follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ. After wrestling with this prophecy that God has placed on his life, Jesus, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. That's basically what Paul is saying in this passage today. Not my will, but your will be done. And look at verse 14. It says, and since he would not be persuaded, Paul would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So the person who changed was not Paul, but it was the other believers, and now they are on board with Paul to carry out the mission of the gospel. It says, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So why did God allow Paul and his companions to see this kind of vision or danger that lied ahead of them? It wasn't to give them a U-turn or lead them to somewhere else. It was simply to prepare their hearts to understand that this was their calling because this was a life that was following Jesus. So the question today is what are you holding back on? You know, what righteous troubles are you trying to avoid? What ways are you taking out of convenience or simply because other people are saying so? Are you wrestling with the will of God? Are you wrestling with the idea of suffering? I'm not just saying that, by the way, we should just look for suffering. No, I'm not saying that the Christian life is a reckless life, that we should live in danger. I mean, me letting Timothy drive my car is dangerous. It's not godly. No, there is a difference between living a reckless life and living a life that is righteous because you know although suffering is there, you can endure it. What we're trying to say is, I'm not saying that we should live a reckless life. I'm saying that we should live a life that is worth living for the glory of God. And the question is, what is it today? I think I shared this before, but sometimes we think uh, dying for Jesus, man, that's too extreme. Uh, I mean, that's maybe for missionaries, that's uh, for pastors, possibly. I mean, those are for the... the Marting is for the select few. And it's not hard to die for Jesus, really. You can go to Saudi Arabia, say that Jesus is Lord, and, and you'll find yourself dead in, in a couple hours. You know, literally, when I was in Egypt, there was a family that turned Christian. Um, and um, according to the, the Egyptian tradition, if, especially if a Muslim turns to Christian, the family has the right to stone them. And there are literally people who died simply because they acknowledged that they were Christians. This is our stuff that happens in the world. And so you see that it's not hard actually to die for your faith. What's harder is to live for your faith because dying, you die once for Christ. Living, you die every single day for Christ. That's the calling that God has placed on your life and my life. And that's the expectation that we have to have in our life. Jesus says, whoever 
seek to lose their life, but ultimately gain it. That when you deny yourself and you live life for his glory, although you will be humbled in this world, God is going to exalt you at the end. And that's the life that he is calling us to live. So in what way are you wrestling to avoid the suffering and the pain right in front of you? Don't settle for an easy life. Follow his will. Let's pray.